0: To this uh, public lecture, which is an ESRC non-governmental public action programme lecture plus centre for civil society and department of social policy. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, we have I think our speakers, none of our speakers, really need any introduction, but I'm going to make a brief introduction anyway, so that if you haven't met them, you know who is who. Well, my father is Professor uh, Sid Tarra, who's um, Upson Professor of Government and Professor of Sociology at Cornell University. He's written extensively on social movements. And I'm sure everybody in this room has read his um, landmark um, books on social movements and transnational activism. And he's going to speak this evening about outsiders inside and insiders outside, linking transnational and domestic public action. And on my near left, I have Professor Jan Arte Scholter, who has many hats. These include, he's very fortunate that he's advisor to the Non Governmental Public Action Programme, along with yeah. Professor Maxime on the University in the front here. And uh, he's also a professorial fellow for the study of globalisation and regionalisation at Public <coughs> University. He's also a centennial. Fellow part of his time at the LSE, the Centre for Global Governance. So um, he's bearing many responsibilities here this evening, along with being a respondent to Professor Tarrant. So I think that's us launch this straight away. Professor Terry will speak for about 30 minutes, and uh, then um, Jan will um, respond to your presentation for about 20 minutes, and then we'll open it up to the floor.
1: Thank you very much for that kind and, thankfully, brief introduction. (coughs) Um, It's a pleasure to be back at the LSE. Um, I was here in 1971 using the library to prepare uh, a now well-forgotten book uh, on French and Italian local politics, (coughs) and I'm glad to see that uh, the library has modernized uh, since then, even if the toilets haven't. (laughs) <laughs> but it's, a del- it's wonderful to be back and, uh, and to see how many exciting things are going on, both within the main line departments and in the centers that have been created since my last uh, passage here. And uh, it's also been a great pleasure this afternoon and this morning to have had the chance to take part in the theoretical workshop Uh, on uh, non-governmental public action and to learn how many younger scholars and some not so young uh, are doing exciting work around the world on uh, what we used to call uh, social movements and now we've broadened to the title of non-governmental public action. I'm going to talk today uh, in the general area of global civil society, But I'm going to interrogate that term because I'm uncertain of its reality or its meaning. And I'm going to ask if it's a cumulative process or if we're only seeing occasional transnational outcroppings in a sea of states. To put the question more broadly, is the traditional boundary between domestic and international politics breaking down Or are we seeing, as my title suggests, insiders going outside and outsiders going inside? I'm going to begin with a story that's both current and familiar, the protests against the Olympic torch in London and Paris in recent weeks. This won't answer the question of a global civil society, but it will tell us much about the nature and the limits of transnational public action today. I'll then propose a typology of forms of domestic transnational interaction, and I'll illustrate it through three cases drawn from the field of human rights. And then I'll turn with some trepidation to the question of how, if at all, a global civil society may be constructed. No one who was in London in the early part of April needs me to tell you about the protests against the Chinese held Olympic torch. The protests by Tibetan monks triggered a worldwide movement of outrage not only against repression in Tibet, but against China's hypocritical promise to improve its human rights record if it was awarded the 2008 Olympics. And while President Bush continued to claim with increasing absurdity that the Olympics are not about politics, even the likes of Nicolas Sarkozy, Gordon Brown, and the European Parliament slapped the Chinese government on the wrist. Well, I think we can learn a lot from these events about how complex and wide ranging are the growing transnational links. In, non-public, in non-government public action. But before I turn to that, let me tell you what I will not argue. First, I will not argue that such events are the result of globalization. Globalization is a term to conjure with, and my friend Jan has done some of the best conjuring in the continent. But I don't think it's a good way to pose the question of domestic international linkages. The reason I don't think so is not because it's not real, but because so much of those interactions, for example, the Olympic torch protest, are only distantly related to globalization. Second, I'm not going to argue that state power is dissolving or that international institutions are displacing them. Someone who comes from a country that upended the international system by attacking Iraq can, cannot fail to be deeply conscious of the enduring power of states. Finally, I won't argue that global social movements are creating a distinct sphere of global civic action. The organization I'll talk about was a largely American one, and the protests against the Olympic torch were largely organized in London and Paris by British and French activists. If there was a linkage among these issues, it was one that was a loose coupling of otherwise distinct local and international events, as the Olympic torch story will show. And let me turn to that now. A few years ago, an American movie star, Mia Farrow, founded a small organization called Dream for Darfur. Dwarfed by the better publicized efforts of the well-financed Save Darfur group, Dream for Darfur had three things going for it. First, it was small and agile enough to be more effective than the mainstream human rights groups. Second, it made timely and effective use of the Internet to publicize its message. And third, it was able to take advantage of the political opportunity offered by movie magnate Steven Spielberg's resignation as director of the Chinese Olympic media effort. Dream for Darfur played a small but crucial framing role in the background of the Olympic torch protests by linking Chinese oppression to the theme of genocide in Darfur, it broadened its message, tapped into some of the deepest feelings of Western publics, and laid the groundwork for what it couldn't have predicted, the protests in Tibet in later months. As the International Herald Tribune put it, The group orchestrates a coalition of believers, non-governmental organizations, but also groups concerned with government abuses within China, Olympic athlete associations, organizations concerned about Tibet or China's influence in Burma, and a spindly archipelago of other China-related causes. Dream for Darfur was the brainchild of a 40-year-old human rights activist, Jill Savitt, and a small group of young activists in New York City, and I have to confess one of them is my daughter-in-law. They came out of a larger group called Human Rights First, a more conventional organization made up largely of lawyers seeking to defend human rights victims. To build their organization, they used Farrow's fame, and the financial support of a California foundation called Humanity United, underwritten by the wife of eBay founder Pierre Omidyar. Savit is no different than the thousands of young people who've chosen, while working domestically, to reach out to others against human rights abuses, in favor of the environment, women's rights, development, and so forth. She's what I've elsewhere called a rooted cosmopolitan, the term I took from anthropologist Ulf Hannertz. This is what Hannertz writes. He says, interspersed among the most committed nationals in patterns not always equally transparent are a number of people of more varying experiences and connections. Some may wish to redefine the nation. Others are in the nation but not part of it. They may be the real cosmopolitans, or they may indeed owe a stronger allegiance to some other kind of imagined international community. There may be divided commitments, ambiguities, and conflicting resonances as well. Well, what was most interesting about Savitt and her group was her capacity to zero in on one issue, the Chinese Olympics, and to use this as a way of leveraging China to join Western nations in pressuring the government of Sudan. Until February, she had little luck, in part because Beijing had no incentive to respond to the soft power of non-governmental public action. But that was before the Spielberg resignation, which dealt the Chinese a body blow in elite public opinion around the world. And that was also before the Tibetan protests, because as the most well-known victims of Chinese religious intolerance and imperial ambition, Tibet lent gravity to Savit's labeling of the 2008 Games as the Genocide Olympics. Now, I'm sure that Savit, and certainly not Faro, had Tibet in their sights when they founded Dream for Darfur. And the Tibetan monks and their supporters who rebelled against Chinese control in March were almost certainly unconcerned about Sudan. These issues were not directly linked. But the Olympics provided the multi-level opportunity structure to link a group of Tibetan monks to New York activists around the issue of Beijing's support for Khartoum's brutal regime through the always pregnant theme of genocide. Here's how Savit tells it From start to finish, what we want China to fear is death by a thousand cuts. China thought it would only face a ham fisted boycott. It's getting something more sophisticated and more insidious. Last week, as you may have read, Savit held her own Olympic torch ceremony in Hong Kong to counter the official arrival of the Olympic torch in China. The story of Dream for Darfur illustrates three key aspects of contemporary transnational public action. First, it shows that small and focused non-state public actors can have dramatic short-term results that their large-scale bureaucratic cousins are too slow-moving and too institutionalized to effect. Second, it illustrates the importance of often fleeting political opportunities in opening windows for non-governmental public action. And third, it shows how loosely coupled mechanisms like brokerage link domestic and international politics. Now, by loosely coupled, I don't simply mean that local actors think globally when they engage in public action. What I do mean is the emergence of mechanisms and processes that bridge domestic and international politics in a sustained way without displacing the nation state or creating a global civil society. This does not mean that states are moving inexorably towards their own dissolution. It only means that connections, many of them conflictual, are developing among states, non-state actors, and international institutions. In the rest of my talk, I'm going to illustrate this from three areas of research on human rights. I'm going to describe three similar processes of transnational activism. The first I call internalization, by which I mean the construction of local or national campaigns constructed around external issues. The second I call externalization, the employment of political opportunities provided by international institutions, regimes, or events for external political action. And the third I call the formation of insider-outsider coalitions, a term that comes from Catherine Sicking's important work on human rights in Argentina. The first process of internalization I'm going to illustrate through the campaign of Koreans resident in Japan after World War II. Thirty-five years of Japanese occupation left a large number of Koreans in Japan at war's end, and 600,000 of them stayed there without citizenship. This left them with major economic, social, legal, and political disabilities. They began to frame a campaign in the 1950s trying to gain citizen rights in four main ways, against the practice of mandatory fingerprinting to which they were subjected, in favor of alien suffrage, for participation in the national pension system from which they had been excluded, and for ethnic education and Korean language instruction. These claims were slow to receive recognition by the Japanese government until the Japanese began to become aware of the importance of Japan's integration into world society. A key turning point was the ratification of two key international covenants on human rights in the UN system and their impact on Japan. After that, the most proactive phase of the movement arose when global rights vocabularies enabled resident Koreans to reframe their claims in terms of universal human rights, rather than particular citizenship rights. This is what I call internalization. Now, the success of Japan's Koreans lends support to the idea that the international norms are being inserted in domestic politics. But we would be right to ask how much of the heavy lifting was done by the Koreans themselves, who were pretty weak social actors, and how much, by a Japanese government that was increasingly anxious to be accepted in the international community of nations. Both were operating, and the Koreans resident in Japan were able to utilize Japan's desire to rejoin the international community as a political opportunity. The second process I'm going to discuss is what I call externalization, And I'm going to take it from about as far away as you can get from London to Great Britain. If Koreans in Japan used global norms to frame their domestic claims, European women's groups have been going outside their political communities to claim their rights in Luxembourg, in Strasbourg and in Brussels. The European Court of Justice shows how international tribunals can serve as a kind of coral reef to attract social actors whose weakness at home leads them to look for a venue in which their rights may be more recognized. Let's look at how British women use the European Court of Justice. The process began not in Britain, but in Belgium where a Belgian stewardess, having reached the age of 40, was told by Sabina that she would have to change her position with the airline because she was too old to act as a stewardess. And she was told if she refused to change her job, she would lose it. After working through the Belgian judicial system unsuccessfully, She brought her case to the European Court of Justice, and the court ruled in her favor on the grounds of equal protection because a male steward in her position was not required to change jobs. Apparently, you can have a pot belly and still be a steward, but you can't be 40 years old and be a stewardess. The implications of the DeFren decision rippled across the EU, not least in the UK where the Thatcher government was unalterably opposed to ECJ law becoming domestically binding. Equal pay and anti-sex discrimination acts had been passed by labor in the early 70s, but they were largely toothless, and they contained numerous exceptions. The Thatcher government worked to undermine even that legislation's limited aims by launching a blocking strategy in the EU Council of Ministers. But this was not to work. The Dufresne case became the foundation for a long line of equal pay decisions by the ECJ, many of which came from the UK and a majority of which adjusted women's pay scales upward. In this effort, the British Equal Opportunity Commission combined with the TUC with an external assist from the European Commission and pushed to develop the case that led the court to hold that British practices undermine the European treaties. The European Commission even organized joint seminars with British unions to advise claimants about how to use European law to best advantage. The key decision came in 1982 when the court found that the United Kingdom was in violation of the Equal Pay Directive. To this decision, the UK government offered resistance. But the ultimate results were dramatic, both in terms of compliance with the court's decisions and in compromising the long-held principle of the sovereignty of the UK Parliament. Through resistance to a government that was not responsive to their demands, British women's groups used a process of international access to put forward their claims, externalisation. But externalizing internal demands abroad is difficult. It's very difficult to shift scale away from where you possess the knowledge, the political opportunities, and the alliances to put forward your claims. And we see far fewer cases of externalization than enthusiasts for global civil society would like. In going outside... Actors lose access to the domestic resources and opportunities they know how to use. And that's why most externalization takes place in short term spurts, like the Women's NGO Forum at the Beijing UN Conference in 1995, or at the periodic meetings of the World Social Forum in Porto Alegre, or of the European Social Forum in Florence, Paris, London, or Athens. And that's why international institutions are important magnets for externalization. metaphor I use is coral reefs. Institutions like the European Court of Justice, the European and Inter-American Courts of Human Rights, and maybe in the future the International Criminal Court can serve as coral reefs for the externalization of demands. And this is why my third process is so interesting, the one I call the Insider Outsider Coalition, that Kath, Catherine Sicking first observed in post dictatorship Argentina. Following a line of research that she began with her important collaborative work with Margaret Keck, Sicking identified what she calls the Insider Outsider Coalition, which results when domestic and international opportunities are both relatively open and domestic activists privilege domestic opportunities but keep open international activism as a complementary option. Domestic political change is closer to home, so activists will concentrate their activities there. However, she writes, activists who've learned how to use international institutions will keep this avenue open in case of need. Sicking goes on to show how, international, how Argentine human rights groups, which had developed international connections during the dictatorship, kept those connections alive even after the Falklands War destroyed the power of the generals. From depending on international institutions and transnational elites Domestic activists scaled down their struggles, but continued to set up insider-outsider coalitions with respect to human rights. And this was particularly true in the cases of the disappeared children after the end of the dictatorship. Now, although she doesn't use the term insider-outsider coalitions, Sally Mary's findings about campaigns targeting violence against women produce a good example of the process that Sicking described. Although the UN affords many NGOs consultative status, NGO representatives' work is largely limited to the lobbies and the balconies of UN meetings. But at the same time, the struggle against violence against women in the global south depended on coalitions between these international NGOs and Domestic groups who are able to use the Convention Against All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, which works through the cultural production of norms. CEDAW has given rise to a complex and slow moving set of procedures involving country reports, commission hearings in Geneva, and attempts to escape surveillance on the part of recalcitrant states. NGOs do have some influence in the U.N., but that influence is curbed by the procedures that the U.N. Security uh, General Assembly has established around CEDAW. The most significant role of non-state actors occurs at the domestic level, where such groups have formed alliances with international women's groups and are trying to translate the global norms of CEDAW into domestic language and Sally Mary's book on the subject is full of wonderful examples showing how this translation takes place she concludes it's primarily domestic NGOs that use the hearings in Geneva to exert pressure on their governments to comply with CEDAW these are examples of insider-outsider coalitions now My time is running out, so let me see if I can summarize these observations on the domestic international interactions of non-state public action and suggest what links them to one another, a mechanism I call brokerage. I first argued that globalization is not the best place to begin such a study because so many of these interactions have little or nothing to do with globalization. I then argued against the opposing thesis that internationalization is displacing domestic state autonomy. I took a more modest approach that a loosely coupled set of processes can be observed in many areas of domestic international interaction. I proposed three such processes. First, the internalization of international norms, using the case of the Koreans in Japan, Second, the externalization of domestic actors in the British women's claims at the ECJ. And third, insider-outsider coalition formation as reflected in the relations between domestic NGOs and the international CEDAW system. None of these processes has radically shifted the global balance from national to international politics. And all of them work within international institutions or domestic Power structures. But taken together, they have a number of positive virtues for activists and advocates of non state public action. First, they can translate international norms into domestic practices. Second, they can give domestic actors the experience of working in international institutions and with external allies. And third, spurred by temporary windows of opportunity, as was the case in the Olympic torch protests, they can produce at least temporary cross-border coalitions, which is the closest the world is likely to come to the creation of a global civil society. Let's return and close with the role of Dream for Darfur, It was begun in a small office on the west side of Manhattan by four activists, and it received very little media or political notice. But very soon, recognizing the danger of a public relations disaster, the Chinese embassy invited Savit in for a talk, attempting to tamp down the talk of genocide Olympics with vague promises of talking to the Sudanese. And I have to insert a personal anecdote. Last summer, I was, uh, as often happens in in America, I missed my flight out of Boston and spent the night in Brooklyn with my son and daughter-in-law. My son was out drinking with his friends, and my daughter-in-law was entertaining me uh, very kindly, I thought. And then at a certain point, she uh, looked at her watch, and she said, I'm awfully sorry, Sid. I've got to get to bed. I've got to go to Washington tomorrow to meet with the Chinese ambassador. And I said to myself, my daughter in law's meeting the Chinese ambassador, what is this about? And that's what got me interested in Dream for Darfur. The Chinese ambassador called in these four young women for a meeting because already last summer he was feeling the heat from Beijing and was beginning to worry about the public relations disaster that eventually occurred around the unexpected Tibetan protest. Savit wasn't fooled by these cosmetic efforts on the part of Chinese diplomacy. But as a rooted cosmopolitan, she and her colleagues quickly saw the opportunity of linking Tibet with Darfur under the broad umbrella of genocide. For now, there was a people visibly under the heel of Chinese oppression. You no longer had to reach into Africa to make the conceptual link between oppression and the Chinese government. At the same time, independent actors, Francis Sarkozy, UN Human Rights Ambassador Louise Barbour, the EU Parliament, Hillary Clinton, independently took up positions that supported Savitt's position and gave it credibility. By the end of March, even the International Herald Tribune and the New York Times dedicated a seven-column article to her organization's activities. Was this only a contingent conjuncture? Yes, it was. And that's my major point about how, if at all, a global civil society may emerge. Not through the efforts of this or that international conference or NGO, and not through the formation of a global social movement, but because rooted cosmopolitans bring their skills and their commitments to link unconnected events in loosely coupled campaigns. That may sound a pessimistic note to those of you who've been working in the elusive world of non-state public action. I don't mean it that way. In bringing actors from the domestic level into contact with international institutions, and transnational actors, the three processes I described are effecting the creation of a class of rooted cosmopolitans who can broker links between the domestic and the international arenas. They are familiarizing domestic actors with the international arena and they're legitimating the involvement of international actors in the domestic realm. And they are giving warnings to states like China and maybe even someday to states like the United States, that they cannot indefinitely ignore international norms and international public opinion. That transition is unlikely to be dramatic or complete. Consider what Mary writes about human rights ideas on violence against women. These ideas, she says, Percolate into local communities in a limited and fragmentary way, primarily through the mediation of activists who translate global language into locally relevant terms. But for anyone who's encountered the molasses effect of tradition, bureaucracy, and obstruction in the world of international politics, such a transaction, such a translation, is a significant step towards the construction of a more humane and a more equal world. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much, Jute. Uh, both for the invitation to do this talk and for the opportunity to be involved in the NGPA program uh, over these years. Uh, thanks also to Sid for his, his well-considered and very thoughtful paper. I'm afraid paper is maybe not what my remarks are deserving of uh, being called in, by, in comparison. Um, more, uh, more half reactions to what he, he has said and then and half meanderings of, uh, of my own. As I was reading his paper and thinking about... Uh, questions that he was raising I was taken back to my PhD which is a dreadful experience Um, (laughs) the thought that you go back to the same questions that you started with Um, I I did a PhD on the the world historical dynamics I think I called it of the the Indonesian revolution and I was was, the the decolonization social change in the the 1940s Um, and I structured my chapters the domestic and the international and then the relations between them and it just really didn't work and in the end I had to get the thing done so I handed it in and put it away and thought never want to think about that again but uh, but the the question again came up uh, as I was thinking here we're all agreed that non-governmental public action does not stop at the nation state country border (coughs) on that almost all Social students of, of, of civil society agreed. Um, actions of business forums, of NGOs, of research institutes, of social movements um, do not halt at political territorial frontiers and, on the contrary, often cross them. But the question is how we should conceive of that and how we should analyse that circumstance. I think we've got a first-order methodological choice, in a way. And again, apologies for this heavy theory at the end of the day. Um, but I think we do have a, have a first-order methodological choice, in a way. On the one hand, we could take an approach, which I think is illustrated by, by, by Sid's talk, um, of taking the nation, state, country, society as our unit of analysis. And another perspective, which I think tends to inform my work takes the world sphere as a unit of analysis. And you might call those respective approaches methodological transnationalism. Um, I don't know what you call the other one. Methodological worldism or something? Uh, anyway, but there's, I think there is a fundamental. They're, they're related, but they're and they're, they're, they share a common concern to incorporate social relations beyond nation-state-country units but they take a different approach in how they actually do that the descriptions, the explanations and then likewise they have rather different normative and policy implications too so I want to in my remarks just to explore this distinction between a methodological transnationalism and a methodological worldism I say worldism rather than globalism because I don't, they're different um, and I want to suggest that the f- the more world perspective has advantages, important intellectual and political advantages over the transnationalist kind of approach. So I'm going to first set out the distinctions between these two and then make an argument for four points of why I think the more world perspective uh, has has advantages. Uh, Advantages about greater flexibility for analysis, more discriminating analysis, um, greater correspondence to empirical conditions as they're unfolding and greater potentials for empowerment and social justice. Now, I'm going to overemphasize the differences, and that's to be provocative. In fact, if you look at and my, Sid and my work, we're actually very common in terms of the issues we raise, the questions we ask, the approaches we take, the evidence that we collect, the explanations that we formulate, and so on and so forth. But it wouldn't be any fun if I did it that way.
1: That's
2: what I would say. <laughs> it's a living. So I'm going to pose this in, in terms of ideal types, which of course are far more uh, artificial as, as compared to the way research practice actually happens. Okay, um, let's put, the, put these two methodologies next to each other. Um, on the one hand this methodological transnationalism I'd say it's a variant of methodological nationalism it it assumes that the primary frame of social relations of social geography is the country with an associated governance apparatus the state and an associated collective identity the nation and in this conception the where of non-governmental Public action is primarily defined in terms of the countries in which the action takes place. And we heard that here, too. It happened in Korea. It happened in Sudan. It happened in Poland. the activity is either inside, internal, domestic, and national, or it's outside, external, foreign, and international or it involves transnational links between the inside and the outside. But the reference point in all of this is the country, the country unit, and society takes the form, it is assumed, the nation-state-country unit. So society is Bhutanese society, Bolivian society, Botswanan society, British society, and so on. The question for a methodological transnationalist, as I think Sid would be, is then whether and how, through cross-border connections, non-governmental public action in one country affects and is affected by circumstances in another country. And that's one way of formulating it. As I say, in the Indonesian Revolution, it didn't kind of work for me. And so I ended up taking a world approach, assuming that the primary frame of social geography would be the world that prevails in any particular context. Now, the world could be of different expanses depending on where you are in history. So, in a certain situation, the world could be a village. Because that's the total extent of the social experience of the the people concerned. Or you could have, as Brodel said at a certain time, the Mediterranean world, because it described a particular world of of, of another context. Um, Or it could be the imperial world of ancient China. In contemporary history, we tend to think of the world as having and extending to planetary proportions. And indeed, we tend to assume that world and global are synonymous. And so if we say today, map of the world, we expect to see the whole globe. So our world is one of planetary extent. Um, So I would be, if you're you're taking this more methodological worldist sort of uh, approach, then you're asking yourself to look at things in terms of a world society. And countries, nations, states, etc., would be part of a world society rather than societies in their own right. Territorial geography, state governance, national identities are key structures within a world society, but they're not the basis of society itself. You wouldn't use the terminology of inside and outside, internal and external, if you're looking at world social relations, because the outside would be outside the world space stations and so on, but that we don't tend to bring those into play. Now, the the divergence between these two approaches is is quite fundamental. Um, On the one hand, a transnationalist approach would say how are activists in one country affecting and being affected by activists in another country, in contrast, a methodological worldist, if I can call it that, is asking how activist networks within the given world context affect conditions at one or other location in that world. Let me give the example from the Indonesian Revolution. On the one hand, you one looked at the social movements within the Indonesian Revolution. You saw Islamic movements, you saw communist movements, you saw feminist movements, you saw nationalist movements. Now, you could take those as discrete within the Indonesian, you'd say the Indonesian movement, Indonesian movement, Indonesian movement, Indonesian movement, Indonesian movement and then look at the others. But in fact, these movements were world movements. These movements were world movements. There were communist movements across the world at the time. There were Islamic movements across the world at the time. There were feminist movements across the world at the time. And there were nationalist movements across the world at the time. None of these Indonesian actors was isolated in their own right. They were part of world networks. And it was the interplay of those world networks, one could argue, that shaped the outcome of the Indonesian revolution rather than a set of interactions within Indonesia that occasionally had cross-border interactions with other things outside you come up with a quite different kind of perspective of what's going on. I guess the word I would use is transscalarity, and I do want to, to make a distinction here. It's not an argument about globalization here, actually. To say that you're looking at a world context means that you look at the different scales, global, regional, macro-regional, national, micro-national, local, and household, as concurrent and intersecting scales of activity within a world whole, the global then is only one dimension of the world. That's why I say it's not a methodological globalism here, but you're looking at the social world as the whole and looking at the different dimensions, the different scales, call it transcalar relations within, within social movements and ask yourself how those transcalar relations shape the outcomes rather than an internal external dichotomy. I think that makes, it, it makes a difference. A transnationalist perspective works on the basis of a duality, internal-external, outside-inside, national-international, where a kind of world approach works on the basis of multidimensionality. It's not two levels, national and international, but multiple spheres of activity, from the household and the workplace, the neighborhood and the district, provinces and other micro-regions, countries, to be sure, Macro-regions of continental and subcontinental scope, and transplanetary, or global, spaces. All of those are involved, and in different situations will be involved in different combinations. Some people people have been inclined to replace the domestic-international distinction with another binary, global-local. And I'm not urging us to go in that direction because I think that makes some of the, the same mistakes of, of, of oversimplifying the context in which social movements work and other social relations work. Rather, take these multidimensional social geographies and look at the way they intersect, look at the way they have reciprocal effects. Again, this is a transcalar formulation rather than a globalist formulation. It's not, uh, uh, I think by now I don't want to call the book globalization anymore. Anyway, that's another, that's another matter. Um, Okay, what are the, uh, the, the, in sum then, I I would want maybe to repose the question. Sid at the beginning asked whether the traditional divide between domestic and international politics is breaking down. And I'm wondering if that's the right question. And is the question rather whether such a binary, inside, outside, is or has ever been the right way to frame social research about NGPA or anything else. A number of historical sociologists, whether it's Baudel or Wallerstein, Stein, Scotchpole, um, Michael Mann, have deliberately eschewed this kind of distinction. And arguably, studies of non-governmental public action would do well to follow suit. Why? Again, I want had four advantages in mind. One is the greater openness and flexibility that I think this approach can give. Indeed, if we think of some of the the example that Sid also gave about the Olympics in Hong Kong, partly it was about China, Britain, and so on, but partly also it was about New York, San Francisco, Paris, global cities, and their relations with Beijing. The minders, as I believe that came along, were actually Beijing officials rather than <coughs> uh, government of China officials. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a, within this world problem of the Olympics and the movement, there are the local, global cities that are involved in their own right alongside the national states. Um, and likewise, when we talked about the women's groups, their coalitions were global at Beijing and engaging the United Nations, but also regional, engaging the Council of Europe and the European Union. The World Social Forum is Porto Alegre, as well as global. And notice in all of these examples, you're not necessarily inside and outside around the border of the state. Is that necessarily the best way to understand how these things are are happening? Um, methodological nationalism, it seems to me, puts scholars in a straitjacket to press all the diversity, the spatial diversity, the geographical diversity of social movements into these two categories, inside and outside. The domestic sphere on the one hand and the international environment on the other. So I, I, I think that kind of pushes us into, into, into too narrow some, some thinking sometimes. Um, also, I think we can get a greater richness of the social geographical texture when we think of the different dimensions, global to household and workplace. Um, instead of reducing the household, the local, the micro-region, and the national into one set, the local, the micro-region can have their own autonomy, their own, di- their own distinctiveness within social relations, not just a function of the nation, the state, uh, and the country. Likewise, the international doesn't become one sort of blob category, but you distinguish between the regional dimensions of it, the global dimensions of it. Indeed, the very word international, transnational—you note—it keeps the national as the reference point. And I would hope that we could get uh, can get 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 away with that, uh, get away from that. Um, I think we look at, if we look at contemporary conditions, contemporary social conditions, empirical conditions, we do see that this kind of transcalar thinking corresponds to a lot of what's going on. If we look at the social spaces in the case of Darfur, we see the different social spaces, local, sub-regional, uh, national, regional, and, in, and uh, international global happening at the same time. If we look at governance institutions, we see that a lot of governance is happening locally, regionally, micro-regionally, nationally, macro-regionally, globally, without all those other institutions being a function of state policy alone. There are trans connections between local governments across the world. There are inter-regional connections between regional institutions in different parts of the world. Governance is happening through private, uh, uh, private global uh, agencies as well as public global agencies. And so a lot of this mixes up a lot of things, makes it a lot more messy in some ways, and it doesn't really fit into that inter- internal, external, national, international frame so neatly anymore. And likewise, identities. How often are people in their actions in social movements not thinking of themselves in terms of local identities? Mini-nations of indigenous peoples, sub-state regions, and the like. Macro-nations of diasporas, and the like. Um, Universalist cosmopolitans in terms of humanitarian identifications on the one hand but also partial cosmopolitans as people act in relation to global identities or non-territorial identities related to caste, class, gender, race disability, sexuality and much more again I'm not sure that the internal-external distinction allows us to capture that full, full richness of a lot of what's going on in social movement activities and then lastly, it's not just that I think that an alternative conception gives us more flexibility, a, more, a greater richness of, of, of texture of social life, and more relation perhaps to the empirical conditions that we see, but it might also be that it has important political as well as intellectual consequences. I'm I'm enough of a constructivist to think that the way that we theorize social conditions and intersubjectively communicate about them, that that is part of the construction of the reality itself. If that's the case, then a methodological nationalism would be part of a a reproduction of a world that follows more national, external, internal lines, and a methodological worldism, whatever, um, is part of a construction and a facilitation and an enabling of activities that can break out of that mold. I don't say that thoughts and arguments by themselves create realities. That would be be far too too much. But the idea that the way that we conceive of social relations helps to make those social relations, I think, is one that's tenable. If that's the case, then we would want to ask ourselves whether thinking in terms of inside and outside, national and international, domestic and foreign, external and internal, whether that is always working to the benefit of various social movements that are seeking various emancipations and justice. And I'm just thinking in terms of, for example, Amazonian indigenous peoples. In talking with those movements, I was struck that their discussion of their movements and their strivings was not framed in terms of we in Brazil and the outside world. Rather, it was framed partly in terms of we in relation to the Brazilian state. We in our identity in relation to the Brazilian nation. But that was only part of the story. Amazonia was also a region in its own right that extended across the river basin and had no particular reference to the country borders that were there. So Amazonia was a, a point of reference, a primary point of reference for identity, for governance, and for, for, for geography in these, in, these, in these struggles. At the same time, they were, they were using regional, in terms of inter-American relations, uh, Inter-American Court of Human Rights and so on and so forth, and they were looking to global spheres, global human rights movements, global indigenous people's movements. It, uh, it uh, It was that kind of alternative view of things. If you said to such people, think of your movement in terms of internal, external, domestic, international, I'm not sure that it's really working for them. I'm not sure that it's really forwarding their cause. Likewise, I'm not sure that, that, that women's movements are always necessarily served by an internal-external distinction as as much to a focus on different spaces from the household to the world sphere. So, I'm meandering in my, in my meta-theoretical ponderings. I've always wanted to think about, and I know that Sid has, this has the same concern, always wanted to think about how do we promote, understand, and also promote social change in a world that extends beyond nation state country Boundaries and societies. Um, There are different ways of doing it. Uh, On the one hand, you take the nation state country as your prime mode of reference, or alternatively, you can see that as one part within a world sphere and focus on this world sphere in the first place. Uh, I tend to go for the latter. Whether I've convinced you or not, we'll find out in discussion. Thanks.
0: stations.
3: a great big place
0: is helpful, it's helpful to to, to, to social movements to understand precisely the kinds of things that uh talked about, maybe how do you leverage governance, how do you kind of find ways to take from the international sphere frameworks that you can then use in different spaces at space level. after Luska and his article on cosmopolitan um, patriotism.
4: I'd like to um, draw attention to the notion of transnational, which I think you used very, very carefully. Because let's not forget, the word transnational was invented quite recently. It is distinguished from the old concept of international. And transnational to me means bridging nations. And just one of this, um, the work we've been doing for this program has been looking at Groups of migrants who live in London, either from Africa or from India, and who organise themselves to do development work back in their own towns or regions. And these are transnational, <laughs> transnational associations because they literally live in two worlds at the same time. They're not either rooted here or, nor are they going They're living simultaneously in two societies, but they're both national rooted societies. And not something bad. The idea that they are some, somehow transforming the way things work because they are living transnationally is also very much exaggerated because the research that we doing shows the way they operate from London is very much dictated by the politics of the home country, the country from which they came. They are accepting the terms of the country
0: from which they came. They are participating in politics.
4: Without altering the
0: terms of it very much, in that sense, the transnational is a very good and specific meaning.
1: Of it. Okay. Probably um, about three minutes each. So we can yes. have a yes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> these are, are terrific questions and uh, and comments. Um, <clears throat> I'm I'm going to uh, counterpunch Jan, but before I do so, I'm I'm going to. Um, I'm going to try and do what my uh, now late friend and colleague, Charles Tilley, always did, and that is to try and tunnel under his position to co-opt him. (coughs) Um, Jan, um, in making this sharp distinction between his work and mine, may have forgotten uh, that in the theoretical chapter of my book, New Transnational Activism, I tried to coin a new and horrible term, complex internationalization. And what I meant by complex internationalization was a process of internationalization that was not simply horizontal and that did not simply involve state-to-state relations, but which (coughs) created triangular relations between states and between states and international regimes and institutions and I argued that it was that complexity of the new internationalism that created the political space for non-state actors to maneuver and to uh, 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 choose arenas between the national and the international level. So to some extent uh, what Jan is doing, I believe, is taking much further the point I was trying to make with the concept of complex internationalization. That said, I think there's one general point I'd like to make and then try and respond to some of these points, and that is, of course, it's the obvious one. It's so obvious it's embarrassing. I know Jan would have made it if it hadn't been so embarrassing, and that is the level at which you concentrate depends upon the question you're asking. If you're going to ask a question about indigenous Amazonians who live uh, in an area that is partly Brazil, partly Venezuela, partly Colombia, then needless to say, the the nation state is not as relevant as that trans- a national area. And if you're going to be dealing with issues at the level of global security, uh, then the local level is not going to be particularly important. So I think to some extent, we, we, may, be, um, uh, we may be starting from the, uh, a mistaken assumption, and that is the assumption that the way one conceptualizes the world should be the same for all kinds of questions. And I don't think Jan thinks that, and I don't think that either, That's why I think he's uncomfortable with the term worldism. Notice he he lowered his voice every time he said worldism because he he, he recognizes that there are problems with that. What he really means is multiism or multilevelism. And and to the extent that we're asking different questions at different levels, I, of course, agree with him. Uh, Marley's on the celebrities issue. You're absolutely right. And that is certainly one for Jan's approach. the remarkable importance of celebrities has to do with the remarkable diffusion of global culture over the past decades, and that is a a sense in which globalization is very real and should not be uh, denied. Uh, Maxine, I, I, I agree with you that it's when you look at the political consequences that states become so important. Anybody who lives in the United Kingdom and studies the European Union cannot fail to be aware of the importance of stateness. In the story I told, my second story, the story of women's uh, 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 gender equality in hiring, uh, there is a particular aspect of the United Kingdom that made it very important in this history. It's called the common law. It's because Britain has a common law system that the local courts could have been employed by women seeking to change the allocation of uh, of salaries between men and women. It was much harder to do in the continental Napoleonic uh, legal systems. So here is a sense in which stateness really matters. The character of the British state is is fundamental in the way these issues were resolved. Nina, I think um, when I say that uh, I think that uh, people like Jill Savitt are uh, rooted cosmopolitans. What I'm referring to, and by the way, I agree with you about the origin of the term. The reason I like the way uh, Ulf Hanertz used the term is because he applies it not simply to political figures. He applies it to the ordinary kinds of people that Richard was talking about who live simultaneously in two countries. And the example that Ulf Used was the example of Nigerian women who come to London on a plane and who strap dried fish to their legs inside their skirts and then they sell the dried fish to other Nigerians when they come to London. He's not talking about a political person. He's talking about somebody who's rooted in the Nigerian reality and who is using transnational space for travel, profit, and fun, and so forth. And the reason I think Savitt is a, uh, and people like her are rooted cosmopolitans is because she is operating fundamentally and is most comfortable within the political space of the United States. She is not operating primarily in transnational space. She doesn't have a seat at the U.N. Uh, She doesn't uh, have contacts with people in the Darfur coalition outside the United States. She is a rooted cosmopolitan, but the implications of her campaign were international. Lotta, you uh, are wondering whether some dynamics may produce new forms of sovereignty uh, and forms of sovereignty at at higher levels. And my response is two tiers for that idea, but I'm not certain that it's happening very frequently or in very many places. When NAFTA was passed by the Mexican, American, and Canadian Congresses in the early 1990s, there was a good deal of talk about the way in the area of population movement, of the movement of populations, there would be a change in the level of sovereignty. Well, if you look at the way illegal immigrants are jailed and harassed and sent back home from the United States to Mexico these days, you, you would be more cautious than, than I would have been ten years ago about that. So I think it's possible. I think it may be happening in delimited areas, but I would be very cautious about, about the, the, the willingness of states to give up their, their sovereignty. Uh, Richard, I can only uh, agree with what you say uh, and uh, about transnationalism as a bridging concept. And I'll, let me cite, if you don't know it, you probably do, the work of Alejandro Portes and his group at Princeton, uh, who have been doing work on uh, transnationals between the United States, the Dominican Republic, Mexico, and I forget the third country. And it, it, it reflects exactly the kind of, bridging notion that you tried to put forward. Thank you.
2: Um, Yes, I think on the the political consequences, I think there are political consequences that are important. Take the Olympics, for example. If you take the prescription that says focus your activities and organise your activities on a country basis. then you wouldn't have it if it's successful if it's successful but, uh, uh, the campaign one hand you because focus on global cities and coordinate. Um, engage the state. If the political consequences is engage the state, you miss well a large, large, large amount of governance today. Um, if you miss out all the directives and rules that are coming from regional institutions that are coming from global institutions, that are coming from private institutions, that are coming from public private hybrids. There's so much regulation in, in an area like finance or so on. And you, know, you look at the situation in the global financial situation today. If you wanted to allow the hobby and, and, and work on financial issues today, if you focus just on the state on its own, of course you do it by yourself. You, you want to engage a polycentric networked governance apparatus, uh, which includes the state. So I didn't say that the Chinese state didn't exist, but that would be different, of course. And then all I'm, so I'm not saying is the end of the state. That debate, I hope, is long gone. Um, we're beyond the, the argument of the end of the state, the state, the state's survives. But rather, we're more in the direction of what, uh, uh, what, the, what kind of state do we have? And that's an interesting question. So uh, the kind of kind of state that we have, again, it's a state that involves all sorts of transgovernmental networks. Are not seen, are not official, are not legal, and are, are <coughs> in all areas that we don't otherwise see. Those are global networks based on the state, so they're both global and the state at the same time. Right? Um, we have uh, intergovernmental institutions, we have trans local relations which are involving municipal and provincial governments in direct relations with each other, often at least partly by chance of the state. We have multi stakeholder forums in which the state is only one, one, one participant, an important one, but. And not, not, not the only one. Anyways, there's a lot of things going on there. And I, I would say, if, if you go back and fall back on this internal, external, it just doesn't work. It doesn't cover all this stuff. I take the point that it all gets dizzy. Uh, it all gets dizzy. And so what you, see, what, you, what you search for is, yes, what is an alternative vocabulary and, and an alternative basic distinctions that would bring the coherence and also relevance and political health focus in the book that we did? That's why I'm in a very low voice. I say mm-hmm. it's, it's searching for something else. Um, of course, it raises all kinds of objections, and raises all, but that's because it's easier to fall back from what you just So, OK, thank you. I'm going
0: to take three more questions, and then will close. Yes. One i the other to has non-engineering people, because we have the opportunity after this to chat again. Yes. So, do you have a gentleman? Thank you to uh, both speakers for, for the stimulating interventions. Um, my question is, to Professor Taro, I wonder whether in the dynamic that you described and pinpointed, there is a suggestion or an implication that something that we're also seeing the weight of collective actors. Because there seems to be an emphasis on individual action and the way that they, we didn't say this, but I I'm thinking the way that individuals can become globally effective in the use of international uh, technology, uh, communications technology, and uh, so I wonder what has happened to the kind um, of collective actor there, the old um, main movement groups. You were suggesting that. In China, that, there was, that this is now a sphere that is really you know, you know, beyond the bureaucratized length of, mm-hmm. of
3: collective action. Mm-hmm.
4: Um, well, Professor Carroll spoke about the ability of non-state actors to use some of these very really tactical approaches to, I think he said, warn China. Warn the United States that we can't ignore these international norms. And to me, the use of the word warn implies that there's some kind of power that can be brought to bear at some point, if um, they ignore the warning. So I'm wondering if you have thoughts about what, if you see uh, sources of some kind of power forming on I mean, the part of some of these non state actors that aren't just sort of tactical and showcasing
0: Okay, thank you. Um, so we have uh,
1: No more questions? No
0: more questions? Last, is well, um, <laughs> the last one. Well, I'll take some... I don't know, just quickly. I think it is anything that we should be able to... With an approach um, that Professor Schultz presented, we can understand the fragmentation of the world in different forms. So I'll
2: hand over to Sid. Rodan, do you to go first? Yeah, let yeah. um, no, Just briefly mm-hmm. about um, transnationalism as a bridging concept. I agree, but I guess I'm thinking of a different kind of bridge. If it can be a bridge that takes us from the methodological nationalism to something more fundamental we consider. Um, I have played with these ideas um, more concretely thinking about transcalar spaces,
1: polycentric elements, <laughs> and plural identity,
2: working those two in relation to concepts of democracy and what democracy might mean in the, in the general world. Um, reaction of, 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 of one uh, colleague from Tonga was, you end up with a really dangerous argument.
1: Thank you for your yeah. um, Monica Frelthal asks a good question whether I think there's a a waning of traditional forms of collective action. Um, And um, one might have thought so from the particular example I used and the importance of the internet and publicity and celebrities and so forth. But I don't think so, and I think um, when I send you a copy of transnational activism that I've threatened you with, you'll see that much of it is about what Tilly and I have called the traditional repertoire of collective action. And and moreover, uh, many scholars have seen the internet as being much more important in bridging different countries' collective action than it is domestically. The obvious logic is people living far, far apart can use the internet in order to communicate and they can overcome the fact that they don't know one another or never see one another in order to engage in concerted collective action. Well, it turns out that the best research shows that concerted collective action depends upon interpersonal interaction and that the most important use of the internet is in organizing the kinds of traditional collective action that you are talking about. Let me recommend the work of Peter Turnbull um, uh, in Wales who's been working on the EU ports initiatives. Uh, And he demonstrates that the unions who have been the most slow to adapt to transnational mobilization, much slower than capital has been, Uh, that the, the work of the unions in virtually every European country that has ports uh, have engaged in concerted collective action most successfully over the past five or six years uh, in, in holding off the courts initiative and in the final uh, initiative, the one in, in 2006, that concerted collective action actually concerted them together with management in order to put off the, the, the commissions uh, of plans. Uh, the term warnings was used in a, in a, in a loose and probably un- unacceptably loose way. Uh, I simply meant uh, that if there were warnings, they were warnings of the possibility of soft power being used rather than hard power. I'm using soft power in the same way that Joseph and I used it, rather than the more vigorous way that power has been used uh, by And then finally, on the epistemological issue, yes, Anna, I think the world is fragmented, and I think that Jan's approach may help us to see just how fragmented it is, but, you know, there are two kinds, Darwin said there are two kinds of scholars, lumpers and splitters. And I'm a splitter. And I'm not a splitter because I believe in fragmentation. I'm a splitter because I believe you can best understand the world if you take one piece at a time and try and try and look at it on its own. And that, of course, has the dangers of reductionism, has the dangers of looking at you know one leg of the elephant and thinking you're looking at a tree. Um, and uh, and that's why we need people like John to to keep reminding us that that keep reminding us splitters uh, that what we are studying so carefully and so empirically is occurring in the glory of the
0: Okay, thank you very much. Well, I'm not sure where we go to the contest between splitters and <laughs> <laughs> so a points, but I do yeah, what I would like to say. Thank you very much for a very inspiring dialogue. Uh, thank you very much.